Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz, coming to you from Burlington, Vermont. Drove across the country last weekend to visit my parents. So as a result, the bike racing we are about to talk about, haven't seen it. Watch the replays. That's about as good as we're going to get. I was in a car. Anyway, we got the usual crew here today. Shoddy Dave, hanging out in honesty. How are you, Shoddy? Very good, mate. Very good. It's been a lovely sunny day here. Winter is kicking into gear. So, yeah, winter tights have already been out and worn. So I'm well happy. Abby, where are you now? I'm in Helena, Montana. We've got like 40 mile an hour winds plus going on outside here. So you're going kite surfing? Yeah, I mean, I was going to go mountain biking, but it's not looking, not looking promising i actually went to school in burlington did you know that i knew that you went to uvm for a little bit yeah yeah, yeah. good cool i place. didn't go to uvm because fr- from i'm sitting in my childhood bedroom creepy right now a little bit and uh and from here i can basically throw a baseball at the uvm dorms and when I was 18 years old and deciding where to go to school I was like I don't want to go where I can see my parents from my bedroom <laughs> anymore <laughs> so I got the got out of dodge so to speak went to Colorado Dane you're in Colorado I am Colorado's really far from your like that that you really got out of dodge like you could have gone somewhere I, else in New England or something but you really I drove drove for 29 hours is yeah. how long it took me to get home yeah. over the weekend fair enough pretty rough Pretty yeah, rough. well, you're missing. Uh, it's nice in Colorado today. It's, it's been very windy, though. I think probably just across the mountain west, it's windy here. So nice day to sit inside and not be, get blown around. Well, should we get into into today's episode? we got a lot to talk about. We've got Jiro. Lots of Jiro things have happened since last time we made an episode. We had, again, Wevelgem over the weekend. Some fantastic racing there, according to the highlights package that I watched after I got here. And then... Some sad news about Roubaix. We haven't talked yet about Paris-Roubaix and how it's not going to happen. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But I want to start off with the racing over the weekend. Dane, can you kind of catch us up on what's gone on since last podcast? I realize that's kind of a tall ask, but it is. we've got Giro and, and Gettwevelgum and, and all sorts of stuff going on. Yeah, there's been a lot a lot of racing action, as we knew there would be, based on the fact that they squeezed like nine months of racing into three and a half months of a calendar. Um like, the Giro has been the big thing, obviously, going on in the Grand Tour, uh, and since the last time we talked, there's been some entertaining stages and uh, changes in the GC just based on the fact that a big-name rider is now out of the race. For the second time, uh, we're, we're talking about this. Um, of course, we, the race lost Gary Thomas. Uh, he crashed, uh, hit a bottle, um, broke his pelvis. That was obviously a really big deal. And uh, Simon Yates now out of the race with a coronavirus positive. Uh, he felt some symptoms late last week and took the rapid test which confirmed and then uh, took the PCR test which confirmed the positive result and so he's out of the race. Uh, no other positives within the team. Obviously the whole team, the whole Mitchelton Scott team was tested. Uh, so the team continued in the race but he is out. So as of nine stages in, the, the two top favorites going into the race, Simon Yates and Gary Thomas are both out of the race which is kind of wild. Uh, now it's just kind of—it's a whole new GC battle. Um, there hasn't been a whole lot of action in the GC battle. Uh, basically, just up until the ninth stage, there was a little bit, um, but plenty of movement just based on two big stars kind of dropping out of the race altogether. I'm amazed, uh, Mister Yates has actually got COVID because I've—I've I've been generously sent a pair of Scott sunglasses that he uses, and they are like PP equipment for your face. They're massive, like. How anything can get past Sims beyond me. So, yeah, he's been really unlucky. I would assume he takes them off at some point, but maybe he should have just left them on the whole time. Would have been much safer. Yeah, yeah. I can't get over how big they are. Like, ridiculously big. I won for the first time today. But anyway, back to the racing news, Dane. Go on, mate. Yeah, uh, I don't I don't know how I got it either. Fortunately, another rest of the team got as far as we know. Um, although maybe the, the sunglasses you know, protected them. I don't know. Uh, but... That puts the the race into a whole new uh, whole new light because now we have basically a different set of contenders because those, those two riders uh, you know were expected to be big big contenders and yeah apparently they're not they're not going to be uh, so Joao Almeida still leads the race uh, after nine stages which is really impressive for a 22 year old rider uh, 
with a team who you know didn't come to this race expecting, I think, to be dominating the general classification. Uh, Almeida, Portuguese, 22-year-old, riding for Quick Step. He's a really promising rider. Word with uh, Haggins Action Berman. Haggins Berman Action. Yeah. Um, he's still in the lead because there hasn't been a whole lot of GC action. There was finally some uh, GC action on stage nine the, the day before the rest day, uh, which was won from the break by Ruben Guerrero, but there was uh, about a minute behind some movement. We saw Wilco Kelderman and Jakob Fulsong kind of separating themselves a little bit. And also Jai Hindley uh, uh, for Sunweb, separating themselves a little bit from the likes of Vincenzo Nibali and uh, Stefan Kreuzvik. So that's really the first time we've seen any climbing uh, differentials in the GC. Almeida still leads the race. Kelderman now second. And Abby, you brought up the last time we did a podcast, like what are his chances? And to be honest, I, I've kind of discounted his chances. He's not somebody who has uh, consistently managed to perform across three weeks. You know, he's he's been up there in Grand Tours. He was fourth at the Vuelta one year. Uh, but so far in this race, he's looked very strong. He's he's has not shown weakness in this race at all. Uh, and maybe if he can manage to keep it together through three weeks, you got to start talking about him like he's a real contender alongside Fulsong and uh, Nibali, who seem to be the, the two big guys with, with Kreiswick, I guess, um, who are the riders to watch still at this race. I mean, we are only halfway through, but I will say, ha! A biting blow there from Abby. <laughs> So who who's the hot favorite now? Fuglesang, Nibali. Does does one look better than the other? There is there one? Yeah, no, I don't think there's a hot favorite. There's there's really those four riders. I mean, and maybe Almeida. Who knows what he can do? Um, you know, Fuglesang seems to be like the guy who you you think would be the favorite here, just based on the fact that he's been so strong in the last few years. But he's never really done anything in a Grand Tour. I think he has one Grand Tour top ten in his entire career, maybe two. Uh, he's just, it's been a while since he, since he really was, a, you know, focusing on Grand Tours as the, as the main guy, I think. And now he's sort of back into that role because he's been so good in the last few years. So yeah, I think he's currently the favorite, but he's only, maybe has a slight edge over Kelderman and Nibali and Kreuzvik and Almeida. Uh, it's still really anyone's guess. One, one like super interesting move that happened on, um, on stage nine that, was intriguing and like very very quiet was Teo Gegenhart who rode off the front um from the peloton and gained a little bit of time back he's still two minutes and 41 seconds down so he's not he's not it's not much more time than like Nibali's down a minute and and Teo like yeah he's he looks great Let's not forget that the last week here is going to be the key week. I mean, it is a very traditional Grand Tour route. That final week through the Dolomites of the Alps is going to be, you know, where everything happens. And 241, I mean, you know, with Teo's currently in 17th, 241 back. 17th place by the end of this race is going to be an hour back, right? Or close to it. So it, the whole thing is going to shake up between now and then. And yeah, I think he looks really, really good. You know, he's... He's a, he's a strong rider. He's a rider who came on young to Ineos and was kind of overshadowed a bit by Egan Bernal. I mean, I'm thinking of like like the year that Bernal won California, for example, and, and Teo was was you know working for his other young teammate. Uh, but he's a really good rider in his own right, and maybe this is a great opportunity with the sort of strange calendar and the and the strange setup and the fact that Garen Thomas is now out of the race. It's a good opportunity for him to kind of show show what he can do, and the fact that he was willing to to pop off the front there in stage nine, like you said, it's a good sign. It, it's a, it's it shows he's willing to fight for it at least, and he's a super nice guy. So I think all of us would be very much okay with Teo having a good ride. At this Giro. One of the reasons that I bring him up because there's like still a ton of guys in between him and first place that are really strong riders. But one of the reasons I bring him up is because he's one of those riders that's like, he's still super young, but he's been racing for a really long time. And yet he's not had a ton of grand tour experience. Like he's been on sky for five years now. Um, and he's never done the tour de France, which is really, really interesting. So that's kind of one of the reasons I bring him up is because with Garrett Thomas out of the race, this is like his first Grand Tour opportunity that he's ever had. Mentioned uh, Ruben Guerrero, stage winner, Action Hagen, Action Hagen's Berman veteran, uh, Joel Almeida, also 
uh, Teo Gegenhardt also. Mikkel Berg, who was uh, really strong on stage nine, did this Herculean effort to get across to the breakaway after the breakaway went and he was still a few minutes behind and he somehow made it across and finished third on the day. Same thing. Uh, so Axel Merckx has to be happy as he's watching all of this, um, particularly with the, the uncertainty of his team next year. At least uh, you know, his riders are, are doing, or former riders are doing really, really well at this year's Giro. Pretty cool. Yeah, don't forget about Alex Dowser either. He was part of um, that team or previous incarnations of that team. And he won stage eight, which was an absolute joy to see because that's his first proper stage win, his proper proper win uh, in the pro ranks, which is quite a surprise because he's had quite a career, really. So Action Hagen's is unfortunately facing... Well, they're facing the end of the team going into next year. The Their sponsors are pulling out, and they haven't at least publicly announced a replacement. I know that Axel Merckx, who runs that team, has been has been furiously <laughs> uh, searching for a replacement for Hagens Merman and, and really, really hope they find one. If anybody out there has uh, has some money and wants to spend it on a U23 development team, or U25, I forget what they are now. Anyway, spend it on one of the best development teams in the world. I mean, like we said, we're, we're seeing multiple riders at this Giro, young riders at this Giro who came straight out of that program. If you've got some cash and want to throw it at a team, this is this is your chance, and that's that's a good one to that's a good one to be investing in. It's uh, it's proven to be really important, not only just for Anglo riders, even though it was a big team for sort of Americans and Brits for a while, but you know it's 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 pulled in riders from all over the world and has proven that it's a really good place for riders to get ready for the World Tour. Uh, they've moved a ton of riders in the World Tour, and hopefully can continue to do so next year. What I love about that team is the fact that everybody must have said to Axel when uh, he was racing, well, you're not as good as your dad. You're not your dad. You're not your dad. But just look at what he's achieved. Like He is his own man. He has made... He, he, he's made more riders turn pro than Eddie would have brought through his teams. It's just incredible. Super impressive. Let's get back to the Giro, though. Dane, what else are we missing here? Yeah, this, I, I think we should just give a mention to the, the two riders who have divided about half the stages so far between them uh, in this race. Uh, first off, Philip Ogana, who won the uh, opening TT and then went on to win uh, stage five from the break. Ghana's a rider that we've kind of been hearing about for a few years just because he was such a talented under-23 guy and track guy, so we, we knew he was going to be something. I mean, he, he's a really powerful rider. Um, but he's really just kind of stepped up to the next level this year and started to actually get the, the big wins. Uh, won a stage at Torino, obviously won the world time trial title, uh, won the opening time trial here, and then to go on and win a road stage, uh, that's a pretty big deal. I think that's his first road stage uh, pro victory. Uh, and he did it with, with flair. Uh, so this is a, a really promising uh, year for him, 24-year-old Italian, and I think he's definitely stepped it up to the point where He's a rider that we're going to be talking about a lot. Uh, we're, we're going to see him at a lot of, a lot of uh, podiums, I think, from here on out, both in the time trials and in any any time where you can kind of solo away from people. He's he's pretty good at that. Monster rides at this Giro, absolute monster rides. I mean, he he won up a mountain. The dude's like eighty plus kilos. <laughs> it's just crazy. Yeah, I'm wondering when the when the uh, Kenny win a Grand Tour, you know, chatter will, will reach a, a fever pitch. It already started. As always, already, yeah, I, as I saw a happens. story about that the other day. Yep. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. If he, if he lost 15 kilos, maybe he could win a great tour. Yeah. I mean, uh, no, leave the guy alone. He's gonna. He's, he's not going to be the next. Well, maybe he's going to be the next Miguel Indurain. I don't know. But Indurain had some other things going on <laughs> that helped him uh, climb quite that well. So, Passionate Spanish maybe fans, Caleb? that one. Oh, okay, yeah. It was the passion of the Spanish fans. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Yeah, it, it propelled him forward. Uh, uh, the other guy who has, uh, with Ghana, you know, carved up the stage at this Giro, uh, Arno Demar, who entered the race in the conversation with the sprinters. He was one of the top tier sprinters in the race. But you know, Elia Viviani is also here. Fernando Gaviria is here. Who two years ago, I mean, people were thinking that he was the fastest guy on the planet. Um, Demar has blown everybody away in the sprint stages so far at this race. Viviani has just looked like he hasn't had it. Uh, Gaviria hasn't been there on, on a lot of the stages. Sagan's been, you know, there or thereabouts as he often is, but 
you know, he's got three second place finishes, but no, no wins so far. And Demar is a big reason for that. So, uh, be interesting to see if Demar continues to to dominate the sprints as the race goes on, and also what Peter Sagan's going to be able to get out of this race, because uh, you know, almost halfway through, he's staring down a situation kind of similar to what he had going on at the tour, where yeah, he was there in the finishes and racked up a bunch of points, but never never got the win. You you vanished for a second then. Yeah, I turned my camera off trying to make it unfreeze, but. All right, now Shoddy's back. Abby's not. Hello. Whatever. It's fine. You're just oh, missing there we go. out on You're my back. Taylor Swift sweater. Oh, God. <laughs> Is that a proper Taylor Swift? Uh, yeah, it's the... the nice. So she wrote a song called Cardigan, and this is the cardigan that she sold along with it. I got it. Flipping it. You're a mug you are, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Should we talk? Get Welvagum. Some uh, some good bike racing over the weekend. Some cobblestone smashing, and we're not going to get quite as much of that this fall as we were hoping for. Yeah, two good races, uh, men's and women's. Where do we want to start? Start with the women's. Interestingly, the women's race actually happened after the yep. men's race, which never, ever happens. Um, I mean, they were discouraging fans from actually coming to the race, so like... The benefit of having the women's race after the men's race is that there would still be the men's fans hovering around the finish to watch the women finish, which in coronavirus times, we actually don't want that to happen. Um, but in a normal year, it would be awesome to have the women finish after the men so that they can hopefully, you know, gain more following. But anyway, the final 5K was actually pretty much the best part of the whole race, but a group went away on the Kimmelberg climb, the final of seven climbs of the race. Up until then, it kind of riders would get to the front on the climbs and set a hard pace and blow riders out the back. But then all of the in between the climb sections, the peloton would kind of all come back together again. So there wasn't much action on the front of the peloton. It was mostly like people getting dropped off the back and then coming back. But on the final climb of the day, 11 riders went off the front. It had three Trek Segafredo riders, Lizzie Dagnan, Ellen Van Dyke, and Elisa Longo-Borghini. No surprise there. Two Bulls Dolmans riders with Jolene Dehor and Amy Peters, and then kind of like a handful of one of uh, solo riders with Lodo Capecchi, who is just having an outstanding season this year. And from when they went, it was 35 kilometers to the finish, and it was really interesting because they, they got away mostly because Leanne Lippert, crashed on the descent and opened up this gap in between them and the peloton and from when they got away they kind of hovered in between like 30 seconds and 40 seconds for the entire ride to the finish so you never knew final 35k if they were going to come back or not and actually into the final 10 kilometers they had barely any time I mean on the stretches that were straight you could see the peloton behind them chasing and there was three significant teams that didn't make the break with um canyon stram sunweb and uh fdj and they were like they had people on the front chasing but the the breakaway was really really strong and stayed away they started attacking each other in the final three kilometers and it was really aggressive in the final three kilometers which was really exciting to watch and Jolene Dehor was the winner after an incredible bit of little teamwork shuffle kind of similar to LaCourse actually with um Elisa Longoborghini and Lizzie Dagnan where uh Elisa made like a late late move and kind of started the sprint too early. Amy Peters went from the back of the group and made Lota Kopecki start her sprint too early. And then Jolene Dehor was able to come round, um, which I mean, I Jolene Dehor is like such an incredible rider, barely raced. So in the preview that I wrote, I didn't, I didn't pick her, even though in a normal year, you would always pick her for a race like this, but just because she's had no racing. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a really awesome finale. Why hasn't she been racing? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the calendar. I mean, she's more of a sprinter type. So a lot of the races that have been able to happen since the calendar was restructured are more of climber style races or kind of roulette style races. She raced the course, but she finished outside of the time limit and she raced the Giro Rosa. She was 
definitely just working for Anna Vandenbregen at the Jerry Rosa, like no notable results there whatsoever. And she DNF'd the final day, which a lot of riders did. So it's not really that surprising. But other than those races, she didn't race at all in the early season on the road because she's primarily a track rider when it comes to the Olympics. Um, especially Tokyo being a climbery style course. So this year, having originally been an Olympic year, in the beginning of the year, she was focused only on the track. So she was racing on the track in February when those early season races happened that we would usually see her at. But I think part of it is also the season is so compact that right now the ra- the riders that are starting to do these classic style races are riders who haven't had any opportunities to race because so far we've only had races that kind of suit the more punchy, like climby style riders. And Dana and I were talking actually on the morning of this race that it might be the only sprint finish we see all year. And it wasn't, but it was the only, it's the only race we've had so far for the women since the restart that it's been the possibility of coming down to a bunch sprint and from now like I mean we're not gonna have with Perry Roubaix canceled I mean it's not really a bunch sprint but um it is flat so there's like no flat races for the women this year and like this one's not technically flat but the longest climb is like a k so it's not really the same as the other races that's hard as Flanders for example yeah yeah which just amplifies the the sort of the way that it's been Annika van Vleuten and Anna van der Breggen so often in so many races anyway for the last couple of years. But when you don't have any flat races, that just amplifies you know, that it being kind of a battle between a, a much smaller number of riders because it kind of takes a whole lot of riders out of the equation for getting those big wins when they're just, they're just not on the calendar. Yeah. Yeah, no Chloe Hosking days <laughs> this, this fall, for example. And, and honestly, yeah. Well, yeah, Julian is, I mean, she, she could potentially show up for Flanders again. Absolutely. What about the men's race? Get well for over the weekend. Men's race also yeah, entertaining and a kind of similar situation where there was just attacks, attacks, attacks um, in, the, in the final hour and a half or so of racing. Uh, kind of came down to there was one big attack and then a big chase group uh, formed. And when I say big, I kind of just mean big names. There weren't that many riders in there. Um, uh, and these two groups formed so that it was about, I think it was nine riders in the end, uh, like a, a, a nine-rider lead group uh, kind of holding off a chase and coming into the final few kilometers together. And that group included Mathieu Vanderpool and Watt van Aert and uh, Mats Pedersen, uh, Yves Lampart, Alberto Berriol. So a lot of riders that tend to do pretty well uh, in, in this kind of race. Uh, there were plenty of attacks out of the group with six, five, four kilometers to go. And Van Aert and Vanderpool just kept marking each other. And that meant that I mean, these are the two big favorites coming into the race, but they were kind of marking each other out of the race, um, and n- neither one could get away. And then with around 3K to go, uh, Florian Seneschal, Matteo Trentin, and Alberto Berriol put in a big attack and did get some separation. Uh, and Mass Pedersen, in, you know, kind of looking and watching as they go up the road, uh, jumped to bridge and did just in time uh, to uh, feature in the final sprint which he won pretty handily. Uh, so really impressive ride from Pedersen, uh, tactical ride and also just strong. Um, and he's shown yet again, and he's shown this several times this season that he's a really strong sprinter. I mean, we knew he had a huge engine, but this year, this year, and we saw this over and over at the tour when he was up there on several pure sprinter days. Uh, and he actually finally gets the big win uh, at Gent Wevelgem. He's got a, a pretty complete package and it really served him well, I think, to not be Wad van Aert and Matthew Vanderpool uh, on, on the day because they... I mean, they're obviously really talented riders who this is a perfect course for them. They can both sprint to the win, but neither neither one could get away because the other was there. And that allowed a rider like Mats Pedersen to get away. I want to step back to Worlds last year and and uh, make an apology to Abby. So after Worlds last year, Shadi Dave and I were both, both of us, we were like, that was weird. Like, Mateo Trenton should have won that, right? Like, Trenton was we, we better sprinter. Mess Peterson, we're like, Mess Peterson, he's, like, he's not a sprinter. He's like a, he's like a, you know, some sort of diesel classics guy. And Abby was like, no, Mess Peterson should have won that sprint. And we were like, you're crazy. You're a crazy person. Get away from us. Come back next year. I would like to apologize. Abby was right. 
Abby was don't, right. Don't think Mess me. Peterson is a very good sprinter. It turns out we didn't know it as of Worlds last year. We should have probably realized it after Worlds last year. Now it is confirmed. And he just beat Trenton again, actually. Uh, and Seneschal. But Don't you know, be mean on this, Kaylee. Like, don't say we when you mean you. I, <laughs> I knew all along. I knew the world suited him perfectly. I just didn't put the money down on him. That's the thing. I think I think it was both of us, Shadi. Yeah. <laughs> There's probably recorded evidence of this, so we can go back and find it. But for the second time this episode, I'm going to say ha. That's a deserved ha, Ugh. too. Yeah. Ugh. I felt that ha right in my soul. <laughs> Hurt. What, Hurt me. What somebody brought up, which was, I, think, I can't remember if it was on Twitter or in the comment section on uh, Cycling Tips somewhere, what would have been a really nice thought was if Mads could have wore the World Champs jersey in the races that he was supposed to do up till the end of the year. Yeah. And then, because obviously, that little Frenchman's going to get to double him up at a couple of the classics. So it would have been that really was... nice like, to see him win. Ye- yes, um, Was it yesterday, Saturday? Oh, I'm losing track now. I think that in was my World former Champs colleague. Jersey. That was my former colleague, Andrew Hood and Danes as well, uh, at Velenews, wrote a piece to that effect. Uh, I'm not sure. I I kind of like the idea from a, you know, I like Mess Peterson, and, and so I would have liked to see him, you know, in the Rainbow Bands for a little bit longer, but I don't know. It, it Like, it would, yes, it would have been cool, I think, if he got to do the races that were supposed to be pre-Worlds and actually do those in the World Champ Kit. The only way to really do that would be to say, okay, well, Next year's world champ, you start with the jersey in 2021, right? You don't you don't start with the fall, but you know it's uh, Lombardia has always been after worlds, and Lombardia you know is is the new world champion, and I think all these other races, realistically, I think it's probably good that it didn't it didn't go that way. I think it's good that they you know you win the worlds, you get the world champ jersey, you don't have to wait for it. No reason to change that particular bit of tradition just because. It, yes, it would have been kind of cool to see Mess Peterson. In the, in the stripes for that victory. I want to put it on the record that I think Mess will win the Worlds again. And he will race those. Like, for sure, he's got the engine to be able, to, and the sprint to be able to win the Worlds again. And there are courses in the near future that we know about that suit him. So I think we'll get to see him race Gent Wevelgum in the Rainbow Bands someday, I hope. I think this is a good time to talk about it. Uh... Unfortunately, whether he's wearing the jersey or not, uh, Mess Pearson won't be able to contend in a race that I think he'd be among the very top favorites to win after his showing at Gent Wevelgum, uh, Paris Roubaix, which has been canceled for 2020. Both the men's and the women's, the, the, what would have been the inaugural women's Paris Roubaix, and the men's race, what would have been a great race for Mess Peterson. It's a, it's a really rough uh, turn of events after there was a lot of excitement about this year's Roubaix. First women's Roubaix canceled. I think that's almost more of a bummer for me. I was really, I was honestly like trying to figure out if I could get over to Europe for that. Uh, not in recent, in the last couple of weeks, because in the last couple of weeks it was quite clear that there were, that was not going to happen. But, you know, after the Tour de France, after us Americans were unable to get over to Europe for the Tour de France, that was actually my next goal is I really wanted to be at the first ever women's Paris Roubaix. And, I yeah, I'm unbelievably bummed that that's not going to be happening. Uh, fingers crossed, ASO doesn't decide to just you know make the women's Roubaix disappear before next April. Uh, I think that now that they've kind of admitted that they can put one on, it would be difficult to go back from it. Uh, although there's also would be very few repercussions if they did. But yeah, it's it's just a reality of of the times we live in, right? I mean, there's there's a Massive spike happening in France right now. Shadi, you can probably speak to that better than we can, but it's not surprising that we're seeing now major races called off. Uh, it's so region-specific that all it takes is one you know, local government to say, nope, can't come through, and races off. What's mad, really, not mad, but what's interesting is that yet Paris-Roubaix isn't going ahead yet. This weekend we had Paris Tours, which is only realistically sort of 200 kilometres to the to the east of where Paris Roubaix starts. Both are in a red zone. Um, yeah, it's a little bit sad. It would have been would have been lovely if it had been the other way around, really, because just hunting about on the internet today, trying to find photographs or even video from Paris Tours this weekend, there's absolutely nothing on there. There doesn't seem to be much media. It was on TV. 
uh, but you had to hunt it down. So yeah, it's kind of kind of sad that um, not a, a lesser classic was put on because it. You, Parry Tours is a, a forgotten classic, of course, but yeah, it's it's a shame that they couldn't have sort of switched them round before it, it things really fell apart. I wonder if that's why though, like Parry Tour was able to go forward, but Parry Bay is cancelled just because it's such a bigger race that they have a harder time yeah. controlling the fans on the side of the road because I think at this point we've proved that the riders aren't there's no there's not a ton of fear with the riders spreading coronavirus or like getting it it's more the people that amass on the side of the roads for the race yeah and uh, you know trying to keep people off the Arnberg forest good luck right it's just it's a such a long route you know we saw during the Tour de France that that tons and tons and tons of fans still ended up on climbs, still were screaming at riders that their masks on, and yeah, I think that it's sort of a victim of its own size at that point. If there's going to be rules about the you know the number of people that can be in one place, well, Roubaix is going to break those rules, and Paris might not because there's no one really going to watch Paris whereas Roubaix attracts you know thousands and thousands and thousands of people. I'd argue it would be pretty easy to like lock down Paris-Roubaix to fans, really, especially on the cobbled section. It's not hard to have police patrolling each cobbled section and them just leapfrogging each other. The amount that they have on these races is ridiculous, especially at the Tour de France. So I do think they could have definitely locked down the, the cobbled sections, especially the the real juicy ones. Um <laughs> And it's not it's like one, a, it's an one alpine way to describe them. Where, so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the real, real, the real, the ones that draw the crowds. Because it's not, it's not like an alpine climb where you're going to get nut jobs running alongside them. True. Yeah, they are going like fifty plus k, k an hour. Yeah, which is a little bit different, but still, I think like Abby said, it's it's the issue of the the crowds on the side of the road. That's what they're concerned with, right? I mean. The, you know, local governments don't care any more or less about the riders themselves. They they just care about spread. And if there's going to be a piles of people, then they're not going to let it happen. And yeah, like I said, all it takes is one local government to say, no, you can't come through. And that's that's what happens. So no Roubaix this fall. I feel nope. like I feel especially bad for the women who have announced that they're going to retire after this year that had, you know, for for example, Gracie Elvin, who is just her favorite races are the cobbled races in these early season races, and racing Perry Roubaix would have been like a highlight of her career, whether she'd done well or not. And she's announced that she's retiring for next season, and and now she will miss the first ever Perry Roubaix, assuming it happens next year. Such a bummer. So yeah, I feel I yeah. feel for for those women who will be watching Perry Roubaix next year, like oh man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I I think one of the reasons I can't wait for a women's Friday Bay is is we don't. It's such a specialist event, right? I mean, like the right. Yes, the riders that do well at Roubaix tend to also do well at Flanders, but riders that do well at Flanders don't necessarily do well at Roubaix, and so we don't really know who would fully excel, right? Because it's not just like oh, just you know, find the the biggest riders you can. It's also a skill set. There's so much that goes into it. Uh, I think it just would have been such such an amazing thing, and will be such an amazing thing ne- next fall to, to truly see who excels in that particular arena. Uh, because, like I said, like you know, those cobbles are just they're totally different. They're completely different from the Flanders ones. They're they obviously they're flat, uh, but they're also just way bigger and nastier and more horrible. And yeah, it, it'd, it'd just be fascinating to see who who in the peloton truly can tackle the Roubaix cobblestones because we don't know we'll find out in April I guess well let's uh let's take a, a ba- step back here from Roubaix to the Tour of Flanders so that's happening this weekend and we should preview a bit Dane who's yeah. gonna win well the men's race is going to be very unusual because of the lack of some some star power that we tend to see at this race, namely Peter Sagan, a uh, rider who's won the race before and is always in the pre-race conversation as one of the big favorites. Uh, just over and over again, he seems like a rider that we come back to as a somebody who should win this race. Uh, he's not going to be there because he's at the Giro d'Italia. I mean, unless he drops out of the Giro d'Italia, 
and gets a dispensation from the organizer to fly to Flanders. Um, so that, you know, the, the absence of Sagan is going to be pretty interesting. Uh, no, no Philippe Gilbert either. Um, after his crash at the tour, uh, it's yeah, it's just a new cast of characters I think that we're going to see contending at the Tour of Flanders this year, and the the, the two big ones, um, unsurprisingly, after after the last twelve months of what they've been able to accomplish, both of them, uh, Matthew Vanderpool and Wad van Aert, I think are the two big favorites going in. They both looked great at Gent Wevelgem, even if they both marked each other out. Um, Flanders is a harder race to control, so I think there's going to be a better opportunity for them to try to get away one or the other. Um, and I have a hard time thinking between them. I mean, who, who would be a, a stronger favorite just because Van Aert showed how fast he was at the Tour de France and, and a lot of those sprints. And, uh, I, yeah, I'm not sure that I'm not sure who I would pick in a, in a sprint between them. Um, you know, I thought Matthew Vanderpool was a better climber up until about, uh, September of this year when we saw Wad Van Aert just like going insane on the mountain stage of the Tour de France. I think they've kind of pulled even, um, so it's going to be hard to say, I think, who's the favorite between them. But you've also got Julian Alaphilippe doing it this year. Uh, this is a big goal of his, actually. A, a big target for him for, for 2020. Uh, and, you know, ahead of the Tour de France, he was saying that the reason he wasn't really focused on the Tour de France, he had other things in mind, including Tour Flanders. Uh, and if he can manage to get away, which he's very good at on these climbs, um, who knows how he'll do on the cobbles specifically, but, you know, the, the, the climbing, the punchy climbing, he's probably better at than anybody on the planet. Uh, you know, he's got to be a contender as well. He's been in good form, obviously. Uh, he's got to manage to hold on to the win, uh, not only to any chasers behind, but to anybody in the sprint uh, who would come up as he's celebrating. So that's another thing that he's got to keep in mind. Um, don't do that again, because he did it at Provence Pale and almost lost uh, again. Uh, so that's another thing he's got to keep uh. in mind. Uh, yeah, Alberto Berriol, Matteo Tencin, Casper um, Asgreen. There's a lot of riders, and then obviously we talked about Mats Peterson, who I think is on flying form. This is a hard race. I mean, the, the climbs in this race, I think I think Roubaix might be a little bit better suited to, to him, but uh, he has really exceeded expectations, I think, across the peloton for the last two years. And, and the way that he rode uh, on Sunday would suggest that he's got to be up there with with the, the favorites. It's just a, it's a much more open race, I think, than we're used to because of the... Yeah, just there's more, more names here who we haven't seen in the past few years with just some new guys starting to emerge. Saying about the start list and the new names that are emerging, I'm amazed at the names that aren't there. A lot of teams haven't announced most of their rosters yet. Like, obviously, Movie Star haven't announced anybody, but that's because, well, it's not a race they're interested in, is it? Um, but it's just amazing. Like, usually by now, we would know exactly who's on each team roster, but there's some, some major teams there. Uh, Mitchell and Scott haven't have only announced what maybe two or three riders it's just it's amazing what would be uh one of the main days of racing in the year is still kind of up in the air to who's turning up and that's clearly down to the amount of racing that's on at the moment the the Giro the Vuelta coming up this yeah I mean the teams are spread mad. thin the teams are spread super yeah. thin uh I mean just to return briefly to the Alphalib thing before we move on, one of my favorite things to come out of Bourbon's Appeal was all the memes on Instagram of Julian Alphalib raising his hands like 50 yards behind other people winning various bike races, <laughs> which was fantastic. Julian, please don't do that again. You're, you're, it's just embarrassing. It's embarrassing for you. It's embarrassing for us because we feel bad for you. Just don't. Just don't do it. I was please. stunned at the turnaround. I mean, his stock was soaring among fans and people around the sport after the last year and a half with the, the two tours and the World Championship win, and then really quickly. I mean, he 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 lost uh, he lost something there with uh, two early celebrations in a I think a three day span, a four day span. It's because the only way that you do that is with an ego the size of a house. That's why, like a large, it's, house. and I think people recognize that. <laughs> A large house, a mansion, yeah, a chateau. You know, you, you don't... Every sprint I've ever done, I was terrified of someone coming around at the last second, and I can't imagine posting up before you were very sure that you got it, and to do it once and to lose with high stakes, with other very good bike races around you, and then to do it almost again and almost lose. 
I mean, come on, dude. Like you, you, you have to be so confident in your sprinting abilities to, to do that to begin with that you're, it's bordering on just absolute hubris and well, therefore your own downfall. I think maybe he's trying to keep the photographers in mind because when a rider crosses the line without doing anything, it's not a great finish line shot. Uh, so you have to wonder, you know, maybe some of the photographers went up to him and said, Hey Julian, it'd be great if you celebrated like 10 feet before the line. Uh, although to be fair, if you do a bike throw at the line, that's also entertaining. So do one of the two, either a bike throw or a celebration. Either one works. Just don't, you know, don't celebrate. Not at all. That, that's not entertaining. So you can understand it a little it's, bit. Yeah. I mean, the reality is like you can make up probably three quarters of a bike length in the last 10 yards of a bike race. If the person you're racing suddenly sits up like a like wind stops sock. pedaling and just stops pedaling and stops pedaling yeah and just little like tries to get as unaerodynamic as humanly possible they probably you know drop four kilometers an hour instantly and anyway we don't need to get too stuck into this it was just really stupid and to watch him do it again at Brabant's peel and almost almost lose it just come on julian I'm still an Allah believer. I'll 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 say that, you know. It's gonna take more than this to remove that from me, from deep in my soul. However, I was disappointed. He also has yet to actually lose a bike race due to celebrating early. At least as far as I mean, he might have done it early in his career. because uh, he got relegated the first time he did it. So he wasn't actually gonna win that's, that race at all. That's true. So I that, I was <laughs> at the time true. I think he was probably happy to get relegated so that you couldn't technically say he lost because of the early celebration because he wasn't winning anyway. Uh, so True. yeah, he, I'm gonna say maybe he that's lost. why he didn't learn his lesson. Maybe, maybe that's why he didn't actually internalize this because he didn't actually uh, nothing was taken from him due to the celebration. So that's why he didn't he learn it. his lesson and he did it again. That's why he didn't learn his lesson and yeah. did it again three days later or whatever it was. <laughs> so dumb. Uh, anyway, all right, let's let's finish up our preview of this weekend. Hot favorites for the women's tour of Flanders. Who do we got? Yeah, I think that Lota Kopecky is just looking so good right now. So if it comes down to a bunch sprint or kind of like a larger group, um, like it did when, when Corinne won, for example, I think Lota Kopecky, she's climbing well enough that like the course isn't going to really be a factor for her. And if she makes it to the end with a group, I think she can win against almost anyone. Um and a favorite for me, like a heart pick for me would be Demi Vollering, who's been up and abouts for a lot of these races that she's been in the last couple, last couple weeks. And she's not got as good of a kick as some of the other riders, but she's just got so much heart and she's been super aggressive. And she was one of the main riders to, um, to keep chasing at Liege Bast on the age, um, and and yeah, she's she's my heart pick for sure. But I think Lota Kopecky is probably my favorite for Flanders. If it goes solo, it's gonna go to Lizzie Dagnan. She's like pretty much unstoppable when it comes to like getting away and staying away at the moment. TV options, are we gonna be able to watch live? Yep, yep. It's gonna be on like all the regular uh cycling channels, uh Eurosport and their various incarnations uh flow bikes in the u.s and canada and sbs in australia i'm pretty sure but i'll do a there will be a preview on cycling tips later on in the week that'll have everywhere where you can watch it for everyone who wants to there we go can't wait tour flanders is here it's october tour flanders time feels a bit weird saying that but it is what it is so I tell you what is nice. So I'm enjoying looking, watching all these races with a different colour to them. Like the tour was great with the big long shadows. The, it's just yeah, just they make make the race look a little bit different. I tell you what is frustrating though is not knowing if we can go to them, even though I'm like in spitting distance of them. Yeah. Yeah. Quite frustrating to say the least. I think we've pretty much just given up on sending anybody to races for for the rest of the year, for the most part. All right, last little bit of news here. Some quotes from Mark Cavendish suggesting he might be he might be done. 
might be he might be done racing. What did he say? Yeah, after getting Lovelgum, uh in a very 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 brief appearance on camera, he was it wasn't like a full on interview. It lasted like ten seconds, but a a very uh, emotional Mark Cavendish uh, spoke to Sporza after the race, and uh, he said that it was going to be uh, that that Gent Wevelgem was, I think he said, quote, perhaps uh, the final race of his career. Um, not not certain about that, and you know he's expected to race uh, Skeller Price on on Wednesday this week, so I don't know if the the plans have changed. Um, for him, but beyond that, you know, he is unsigned for next year, as far as we know. There was talk about him uh, continuing to, to talk with uh, Byron McLaren, who he had signed a one-year deal with at the start of the season. Um, but I, as far as we know, he has not continued, or he's not going to continue, or hasn't extended yet with the team. Uh, and and I'm not sure that any other teams have offered him uh, a contract, or at least not one that he's been willing to take publicly. Uh, so for now. Depending on whether he races Skeletor race, that this could be, yeah, the the quote, perhaps the last race of my career. Um, so we'll we'll see, we'll see if that actually was, or or if this is the last year of his career. Either way, I mean, even if he races one or two more races this year, that's still a pretty big deal. Uh, if this is suddenly uh, the last year of his career, I don't think a lot of people expected him to retire this year. Uh, this was he obviously has not been the thirty-time Tour de France stage winner, superstar in the sprints that he was. But this was not something I think that was that expected. Uh, so we have to keep an eye on that. We don't really know at this point. Yeah, I don't know. We don't need to do a full sort of retrospective on Cav at this point. I think if he does retire, he's he's worth the better part of an episode and a little bit more preparation on our part other than just seeing this and, and, and wanting to discuss it. But it is, you know, this this is this is the this is the danger of sort of like continuing to race when you're really struggling to find results right like if if get was his last race ever and he just sort of poof disappears off into nothingness in, in retirement like that's kind of a bummer of a way to go right like he's a rider who deserves a bit more pomp and circumstance i feel like for his last race so if nothing else i hope that he picks a race says this is my last one so that the sport can give him that pop and circumstance uh, versus just sort of saying, oh, well, that was the last one and I'm done and I'm out. Not that I would really blame him for that. You know, on a personal level, that might be an easier thing to do. But it would, I think it would be a shame for a shame for Cav fans, no question. He, uh, one interesting wrinkle, he did get into the breakaway at Gantt Revelgum, got into the early breakaway, which, you know, I think was always doomed, but it was a nice sort of change of pace, that's not something that Mark Cavendish uh, has been known for doing in his career. Which, to me, that was maybe another sign that he is feeling like this might be it. Uh, that's just such a strange thing for him to do. Uh, he's a, obviously a rider who, 10 years ago, would have been a favorite for Gantt Bubblegum. You know, the, the sprinter-friendly classic. Um, so, yeah. But I agree. I think it would be... Yeah, I'm actually just a little surprised that if, if, if that is the end, or even if Skelepreis is the end, that, that there hasn't been a bit more built up to it, that he hasn't let people know... Um, because there, there would be, I think a lot of just all over the sport, people, people would, would, uh, would come out with, you know, their, their calf stories and, and all that, that kind of thing that tends to happen when a big name rider retires. How dare you though, Dane, say that getting in the break isn't the sort of thing he'd do. I remember back in ooh, 2007 <laughs> when he got in a move at the Tour of Britain and uh, finished second in my hometown where I grew up, up a hill that I used to do my paper round on. It's the same hill that Matthew Vandenpoel won up last year at the Tour of Britain. So, yeah, Cav has got in a few breaks before, but, yeah, it's like, whatever, 13 years ago. I won't pull you up too much on it. <laughs> <laughs> He's hopped in a couple of random breakaways throughout his career. I'm trying to remember. I think it was maybe a tour stage or something. No, it wasn't a tour stage. What was it? I, I swear he was in a break like it was Roubaix or Flanders or something like that uh, many years ago five One six like Roubaix, peak of his powers was. yeah peak of his powers and he was sort of like everyone was like what is he doing and uh, I'm pretty sure it was Roubaix I think he was in the Roubaix breakaway a couple years ago 2017 uh, I want to say six yeah. 17 the only reason I remember I think it was 2017 is because I interviewed him for Instagram or Facebook Live on the line back then. 
and um, got him and Blythe to get a ch- chit-chatting. Sounds about right. Could, 17? Could be early. Could be 16. I don't know. 17, 18, 16. 17. Feels like it'd be earlier than that. Anyway. Don't know how I'm going to edit this to make Good you Good luck, Abby. <laughs> Godspeed. All right. I do think it's time to wrap up for today. Can't wait for the Tour of Flanders this weekend. We'll be back on Monday with a roundup and recap and discussion of everything that happened at Flanders over the weekend. The only other thing on my list here, a list of things to talk about, it just says e-bikes are sweet. <laughs> We've mentioned this before. Before we, before, we, before we call it a day, I'm, as I said, at my parents' house. We drove over here from Colorado. It took a very long time to visit everybody. So I'm hanging out now and I'm going to take a coronavirus test later in the week and then you know vis- go visit grandma and things like that. But this morning... My mom was like, hey, do you want to go for a ride? And I was like, sure, I'd love to go for a ride. I brought brought my bikes out, obviously. And she hopped on her e-bike, her e-mountain bike. She has a specialized turbo Levo e-mountain bike that she's been riding all summer. And I should preface this by saying that my mom is not, I shouldn't say is not, was not a cyclist my entire young life. As my brother and I were racing as juniors and my dad was riding all the time, my mom was, you know, very supportive but not not participating. And so I, this morning, went for the first real mountain bike ride with my mother ever in my life. She's in her 50s. I'm in my 30s. It took this long. It took an e-bike. So if anyone's out there who hates on e-bikes... I suggest you shove it where the sun don't shine because they're sweet. <laughs> here, here. <laughs> they are. They're awesome. And if you want to tell me that there was anything wrong with me going for a little cruise with my mother, who, by the way, on an e-bike just goes as fast as me because she is just getting into mountain biking in her 50s, you're going to tell me that she can't ride her e-bike wherever she damn well pleases? Yeah. Well, you're going to have to fight me for it then. All right, that's uh, that's it for today. E-bikes are sweet. We hope Cav didn't just retire unceremoniously over the weekend. Flanders is coming this weekend. It's a good time to be a cyclist and a bike racing fan. And we will be back next week on Monday. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>